Please turn your attention to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 20. Usually this is the start of Advent season, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, but because the calendar falls, uh, this, the way the calendar falls, it, we don't start until next Sunday, which allows us to bring our fall sermon series on the Lord's Prayer to a close, and we're going to consider this morning the doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And to do that, we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 29, and I'll explain in a moment why we're going to do that, but first, let me read this for us. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 20. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and the king. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And so we come with eagerness and anticipation to your word, asking that you would speak a word to us in season, a word that we need to hear. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, and we just prayed it together corporately, you know the doxology at the end. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But what you may have also realized um, when you heard it read is it does not appear in the NIV. That doxology does not appear in the NIV. You have to go to the footnotes if you have a, a Bible open. You have to go to the footnotes to find it. The reason that it, it, this is is because some of the manuscripts uh, include the final doxology and some do not. Uh, the Western manuscripts in Latin did not contain this doxology, and the Eastern manuscripts in the Greek do contain it, but it's missing from some, some of the earliest manuscripts. There's a Christian writing in the early 2nd century called the Didache, which includes this doxology, but in a slightly different form. There, it's listed as, for thine is the power and the glory. So just considering the manuscript evidence alone, it's more likely that this original prayer of Jesus uh, did not include the doxology, and it's why the NIV puts it in a footnote. So then the question is, should we be praying the Lord's Prayer with the doxology? Has the church been wrong all these years to pray the Lord's Prayer as we've been praying it? 
John Broad, as a commentator on the Lord's Prayer, says this. He says, Surely it's more important to know what the Bible really contains and really means than to cling to something not really in the Bible merely because it gratifies our taste or even because it has for us some precious associations. And that's true. I I think we should be absolutely clear in what's in Scripture and not add to it. On the other hand, I think a doxology at the end of a prayer is consistent with what the Bible teaches. And it really should be no surprise that the early Christians added a doxology to the Lord's Prayer. Jewish prayers of the time almost always ended in a word of praise. The most common doc, uh, Jewish doxology at the time went like this. Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. A Jew would always end his prayer with some sort of doxology. And so when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, it's no surprise that the early Christians felt like it was unnatural to end the prayer on a note of deliverance from the evil one and more natural to add a doxology. The Bible is full of doxologies throughout its pages. For example, right in the middle of uh, his letter to to Timothy, Paul spontaneously breaks into a doxology. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We're in the middle of Revelation. John breaks into a doxology. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And so I would say this. Even though the doxology in the Lord's Prayer probably doesn't appear in the best manuscripts, I think it's still biblical to pray a doxology. And the specific words of the doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, actually do appear in 1 Chronicles 29. So it is biblical. And this is why this is our text for our sermon this morning from 1 Chronicles 29. I think it's a, a fitting text, especially to consider on this Thanksgiving weekend. This weekend that we have set apart for Thanksgiving and praise. 1 Chronicles 29 shows us that praise is a fitting way to begin and end prayer. And we've, we've seen this. Beginning of our Lord's Prayer series, we've seen how praise is a fitting way to begin prayer. Jesus teaches us to begin our prayers, hallowed be thy name. To where we pray anything else, we pray that God's name would be hallowed and glorified and lifted up as a way of making clear that we love God for who he is, not fundamentally for what he does for us. Praising first makes clear that our lives are centered around God. If our prayers are only petition, only asking God for things that we want, our petitions may in fact be idols. More important than than God, and God is just a means to our end. We're asking God actually to serve our idols. If all we do is petition God, it's possible that our petitions are really idols that we're asking God to serve. Praising God first makes sure that we are God-centered. And if we're God-centered, it helps us to rightly pray for ourselves and rightly offer our petitions to him. If it's fitting to begin prayer with praise, it's also fitting then to end prayer with praise for the same reasons. 1 Chronicles 29 gives us three reasons to praise God. That I want to suggest for us this morning for our consideration. God is the true king. He's the great giver. And he's the real sustainer. God is the, the true king, the great giver, and the real Sustainer. First, God is the true king. First Chronicles 29 is a prayer of King David. David was one of the greatest kings in Israel. And this is one of the greatest moments of his life and reign. You need to know a little of the backstory. David had in his heart to build God a house. 
He observed, he says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but God dwells in a tent. I'm going to build a house for God. And God breaks in and says, you, David, you have shed so much blood, you shall not be the one to build a house for me. You, you, uh, you, your son will be a man of rest. He will build a house for me. So David can't build a house, but he does what he can. And he proceeds to gather materials to construct a house for God. And then he'll commission his son to build this house. And so the first part of Chronicles 29 shares how much wealth David gathers to build the temple. David says, with all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, and all of these in large quantities. David goes on to say, besides in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. And then he's specific. He enumerates 3,000 talents of gold, which is 110 tons, 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, which is 260 tons of silver. And then the leaders and the people respond to David's generosity with a generosity of their own. They gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents of gold, 190 tons of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, which is 380 tons, 18,000 talents of bronze, 675 tons of bronze, and 100,000 of ta talents of iron, 3,800 tons of iron for building the temple. David says, anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord. Now, I would suggest to you that that is a quite, quite a fundraising campaign for a building project. We raised a lot of money for a new building for a congregation our size, but it was pennies compared to what David and the people gather. David proceeds to gather these materials to construct this, this uh, temple. And a lot of kings at this point would be filled with pride at raising this kind of wealth. And that's, that, that's, the, that's a natural response. For example, Donald Trump is not shy about letting us know how, how much his net worth is and how much his properties are, uh, 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 are valued at. David uses this occasion, on the contrary, to praise God, verse 10. Praise be to you, Lord, the God and Father of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You're exalted as head over all. Here's an occasion at the height of David's reign. One of the greatest accomplishments of his reign, and instead of patting himself on the back and basking in his own glory, David recognizes and gives praise to God as the true king. David's kingdom is great, but God's kingdom is greater. David's kingdom is powerful, but God's is more powerful. David's kingdom is glorious, but God's kingdom is more glorious. And so the height of his reign the pinnacle of his greatness, David offers a doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. David recognizes God as the true king. Not just at the height of his reign, but this is also, I remind you, the end of his reign. David has reigned for 40 years. The end of this chapter uh, describes how he dies at a good age and his son Solomon is anointed king. So 1 Chronicles 29 is a hinge. Between David's reign and Solomon's reign, it's the end of an era. It's a time of transition. 
Israel is facing a future without their beloved King David leading them. And David reminds them in this moment that though he will be gone, the true king will still be on the throne. In times of political transition and instability, a doxology reminds us that God is still on the throne, that the true king is still reigning, that his kingdom and his power and his glory are forever. Sally Breston Hale, around 2000, was an art student who struggled to understand how a good God could allow evil and suffering. Sally was facing painful challenges in her own life around this time. And then the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center happened in 2001. At the time, she was pursuing a master's degree in Poland, and she visited Auschwitz and experienced deep anguish because her Jewish grandmother had escaped Poland as a teenager but was forced to leave behind family members who died under the brutal uh, Nazi regime. And Sally struggled. How can a good God allow evil and suffering? In her anguish, she returned to America seeking answers. And because she was an artist, she thought that some, might, some insight might come through painting Aslan, the lion, and C.S. Lewis is the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. She knew that quote that described him as not being safe, but good. He's the king, I tell you. And Sally began to work on a large canvas to try and capture this paradox that Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. And each morning she prayed that God would guide her work. When she completed the painting, however, she felt that she had captured the part that Aslan isn't safe. And if you've seen this painting or, or can see it, you'll see that Aslan steps out of a swirling storm of brush strokes. And it's clear that he's not a safe lion. She captured that part, but she didn't see his goodness in the painting. And she felt that she'd fallen short of her goal. But the Sunday after she, she finished her painting, she shared it. She uh, uh, shared it with her church and displayed it there. And a woman uh, studied it and pointed out that she could see another animal in the painting. Underneath Aslan in the swirl of white and yellow paint, there was clearly a picture of a lamb unintended by Sally, unbeknownst to her. God had guided her hand and brushed to include a clear symbol of his goodness and love. And if you ever visit Wheaton College and you see the C.S. Lewis uh, collection, you, you can see this painting. It's a remarkable painting. Sally realized that she didn't have an answer to why God allows suffering, but she did have confirmation of God's goodness in the image of a lamb. God is the great king who's not safe but who chose to enter into our suffering rather than staying outside of it. Like Aslan, God is the king who isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king greater than King David. My friends, we live at a time of significant political instability and transition. We're witnesses of the Russia-Ukraine war that grinds on with seemingly no end in sight. And now there's a war between Israel and Hamas that could easily escalate into a much larger war makes a lot of people emotional and fearful. Our country comes, is, seems to be coming apart at the seams. We're more politically divided than at any point I've seen in my lifetime. We're facing a potentially contentious presidential election. Climate change is happening. The, war, the, the, the world is heating up. Our world is on fire in many ways. At this point, we need to remember what David says. 
the king is still on his throne. Earthly kingdoms and earthly powers and earthly glories are fleeting. But his kingdom and his power and his glory are forever. God is the true king. That's the first thing that David sees. Secondly, he sees that God is the great giver. In response to this great wealth that David is able to accrue, he not only praises God as the true king, he praises God as the great giver. Look at verse 14. He says, everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David sees before him these tons of gold and silver and bronze, and he says, God, this all comes from you. It's a contrast to the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar, that great king of Babylon, who we're told was walking on the roof of his palace saying to himself, is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? See, when people get wealthy, that's the typical response. This is all done by me and for me. I've worked hard for this money and now I get to enjoy it. But David says, this is by you and for you. I'm only giving you, God, what you gave me first. How does David come to this attitude? He recognizes who he is and who the people are. Verse 14, he says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Verse 15, We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. David looks at all this wealth that he and the people have accrued, and he said, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve this land we're living in. We don't deserve this wealth because we were once aliens and strangers. We were wandering in the wilderness without a home. All of this, God, is a gift of your grace. When my dad tells us his life story, it is filled with gratitude to God. My dad came to this country as a foreigner and a stranger, he was the first in his family to come here as a college student, and he had no money. He came as a college student. He had to work long hours at a can factory in the summer to make his college tuition in the fall. And yet, step by step, God gave him a, a long career as a medical doctor, and he gave him a family with five of us kids, provided for our family in ways beyond his dreams. Now he has grandkids, and he is filled with deep gratitude to God because he remembers who he is and where he came from. David recognizes the exact same thing. He, re he recognizes who he is and where he came from. And he recognizes that even his very life is a gift. He says, these days on earth are like a shadow. It's just like James 4 that says, our life is like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And if you know that verse in James, he's speaking to business people who are developing plans to make money. They say, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go to this city and that money, and, and, and I've got this business plan. I'm going to make a lot of money. And James breaks in and says, wait a second, you're, you're making a big assumption about tomorrow. Our life is a vapor. It's a mist. Blow on it, and it's gone. Which is to say none of us really knows what tomorrow is going to bring. And so at the end of the day, our lives are a gift. And David realizes his life is a gift. He can't take credit for the wealth that he has. He recognizes where the wealth has come from. Verse 16 says, Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. See, David sees himself not as an owner, but as a steward of all that he has. 
It's a worship song I remember singing uh, in my young adult years. Lord, I offer my life to you. It goes like this. All that I am, all that I have, I lay them down before you, O Lord. All my regrets, all my claims, the joy and the pain, I'm making them yours. Why? The bridge says this. What can we give that you have not given? And what do we have that is not already yours? All we possess are these lives we're living. That's why we give them to you, Lord. That's David's mentality. David remembers who he is and where his wealth comes from. God, the great giver. Been listening recently to a podcast I came across with a podcaster named Guy Raz. It's called How I Built This. And Guy Raz interviews innovators and entrepreneurs and idealists for their stories about the movements they have built. For example, he interviews the founders of companies like Etsy, uh, Spikeball. He interviews Thomas Keller, the, the famed three-star Michelin chef of the French Laundry. He interviews the founders of Crate and Barrel and, and Tory Burch and Viore and Shake Shack and so on. And at the end of each interview, he asks the same question. It's a very interesting question. Guy Raz asks these innovators and entrepreneurs this question. How much of your success do you attribute to your own hard work and intelligence? And how much do you attribute to luck? And many of them say luck. Here is one example. Rob Kalin, the founder of Etsy, says that in 2006 he was going to craft fairs and introducing himself and handing out flyers for a website that no one had ever heard of. He says, it's, it's just crazy. He says, now I can go to a concert. I can walk up to a random person, and they will have heard of Etsy, a word that he made up. He said, it's just crazy to think about that. Etsy is now a publicly traded company with a market cap of $8 billion. Guy Raz asked Rob Kalin how much of his success was due to hard work and how much was due to luck. And Rob says this, the older I get, the more it feels like there's another force at play. Karma, providence, luck. Without these forms of luck, being born in the United States into a middle-class family, the strange path I took through school, literally handing my rent check to the landlord when he happened to be holding a proposal to make a website, which is the, what started it all. He says, how can you look at that and not think it's both luck and some sort of providence? That's a prerequisite. And then all the hard work is what follows. See, he's saying, in a secular way, what, what David is saying. I mean, Rob Kalin, instead of talking about God the great giver, he's talking about luck and providence, small p and karma. He's acknowledging that there are these forces that he's in control that he had nothing to do with that have contributed significantly to his success. What secular people call luck, Christianity calls grace. The grace of God. The gifts of God, the great giver. And when you recognize this, you recognize that everything we have is from God. See, we can't, we can't take credit for where we're born. And yet it has so much, this has so much impact on who we become and what we do, where we're born. We can't take credit for that. Everything we have is from God. Everything that we have belongs to him. And so, my friends, I think this is the key to becoming a generous person. See, we think like, we think like an owner, like, I, I made this money, this is mine, it's going to be hard to give away. But if we think like stewards, God, everything I have belongs to you, you gave it to me, and you want me to be generous, it's then a joy to be generous. David recognizes these things, he recognizes God as a true king, 
God as the great giver. And then lastly, he recognizes God as the real sustainer. Look with me at verse 17. David says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. David is saying that God doesn't just want our gifts and our money and our outward worship. He wants our hearts. Isaiah 29, 13 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God cares not just about outward gifts. He wants the right motives behind those gifts. He wants hearts that give willingly and joyfully. So David says, you are the tester of hearts. It's an interesting moment where example of how God tests our hearts. Deuteronomy 8 Moses says to the Israelites, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger in the wilderness and then feeding you with manna that you might learn to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God tests the hearts of his people in the wilderness by causing them to hunger. It's a ministry of deprivation that they might learn how dependent they are on him. Not on daily bread, but on him. God is the one who sustains us. He alone is the real sustainer of our lives and hearts. He's the one who makes our hearts willing and joyful. Which is why David ends this prayer, this doxology, with a prayer for his people in verse 18. That God would give his people right desires and loyal hearts. And then he prays for his son Solomon in verse 19. That Solomon would be filled with a heart of wholehearted devotion to God. Because only God can keep our hearts rightly oriented and wholly devoted to God. God is a real sustainer. There is this promise in the Old Testament that God will give his people a new heart and put a new spirit in them. That he'll remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. He'll put his spirit in us and move us to follow his decrees. And my friends, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ that we receive a new heart and a new spirit. And through Jesus Christ's death in our place, on our behalf. He took the punishment from us so our sins can be forgiven and our hearts can be cleansed. And Jesus then sends his spirit into our hearts. He gives us a new wonderful counselor to transform us from the inside out. To give us new desires and new attitudes. In Jesus Christ, God is the real sustainer. In John 4, there is a woman at the well who is very thirsty. She has five different, she's had five different husbands and she's in a relationship with one who's not her husband. And she encounters Jesus at the well when he asks her for a drink. And she says to him with great surprise, how can you ask me for a drink? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and we have nothing to do with each other. And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you have, would have asked and he would have given you living water. Jesus said, if you really understand who I am, you would come to me with your deepest longings and deepest thirsts. Jesus saying, is saying our failure to pray is ultimately a failure to know Jesus Christ. 
to truly know who he is. John Piper puts it this way. He says, a prayerless Christian is like that bus driver who's trying to push the, his bus out of a ditch, trapped in a ditch on his own because he doesn't know Clark Kent is on board the bus. A prayerless Christian, he says, is like having your apartment wallpapered in Nordstrom gift certificates, but shopping at secondhand stores because you can't read. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to you, you would ask. My friends, if we know who Jesus is, we would come to him. We would ask. We would pray. If we know who God is, the true king and the great giver and the real sustainer, we would pray. We would ask. We would praise. Doxology is a fitting way to begin and end any prayer. In this Lord's Prayer series, I hope we've learned how to pray. I hope we've become motivated to pray. Lord's Prayer is an invitation to all of us to access supernatural help and power from the true King and our Heavenly Father in this world and in our lives. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the true King and the great giver and the real sustainer. We can say from our hearts, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever at the beginning of our prayers and at the end. Lord, we pray that there would be this note of doxology in our lives. We pray that because of who you are, you would teach us to pray and to praise. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.